Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we're back in the podcast studio and I've got a special guest with us coming to us from a pretty close location here in Connecticut. I've got Dr. Pamela Coons, who is the leader of gastrointestinal cancer programs and the director of GI medical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine right here in New Haven, Connecticut, about 20 minutes from our office. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much. My pleasure to to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. I know this is, uh, I, I know full disclosure for our audience listening at home, um, you just recently moved your entire family out to the East Coast. You were on the West Coast uh, for quite some time with your work. And when you landed at Yale, I got really excited because of your work that you had done in neuroendocrine tumors. And we were talking before we were recording, uh, Dr. Charlie Fuchs, who runs the cancer center at Yale, a person that I've met with quite frequently, I've known his work when he was up at Harvard and then all the great things he's doing here locally at Yale. It just, it got me really excited as, as we were talking before I hit record, because I know Charlie's been working hard to build the program at Yale. And when I saw your, your, your resume, may come over, you know, uh, when they made the announcement, I was like, this is awesome. Another person focused in, you know, uh, pancreatic cancer with a focus in neuroendocrine tumors, um, just building out the program here at Yale, which is, you know, close to our office. And, you know, we we do some work with Dr. James Farrell with our Precede Consortium. And, um, you know, I think I mentioned this before we hit record, Yale's got kind of a special place for me. My dad was uh, treated there for a while while he was battling, but mm-hmm. I didn't mention this to you. My mom is actually a two-time breast cancer survivor, and mm-hmm. she was treated the second time at Yale, and and she's still alive. You know, so it's just a it's a special place for me. So I I love seeing all the great things happening there. Um, so excited to have you here on the podcast. So Pamela, something we do with all of our guests is we always give them the opportunity to kind of share their background with our audience. And I know I just gave you kind of a a brief introduction to our audience in terms of who you are and you came from the West Coast, but that really doesn't do it any justice. So with that, I want to hand the mic over to you so that you can share a little bit about your background, you know, where you started, what you were doing out on the West Coast, and, and maybe you can talk a little bit about what you're excited to be doing at Yale. Sure. Happy to give a little background. So I am actually sort of back home, so to speak. I'm originally from New England. I grew up outside of Boston and um, had really spent my entire life in New England in college and medical school at Dartmouth. And then um, I headed out west. I went to Stanford for internal medicine residency and fellowship and stayed at Stanford as a faculty member in oncology. And um, I was, I am a GI medical oncologist and I fell into GI oncology really by accident as is, you know, many things in life. And I really was attracted to the field because it had a variety of cancers. I think I, I knew that I'd have an opportunity to work with patients of all ages and um, races and genders. And I really liked that variety. And then personally fell into the field of neuroendocrine tumors, um, also by chance. One of my mentors 
said that it's easier to become an expert in a rare disease. And at the time, um, this was in the late 2000s, really very little was known about neuroendocrine tumors. And we really had almost no FDA approved agents. And it was a really exciting time to get involved in the field. And the community of, of researchers in GI oncology and in neuroendocrine tumors was incredibly welcoming. And um, it was just a great community to join. So GI oncology, and I know we've had GI specialists on the podcast before, it's such a broad spectrum, right? And I think the analogy that I've heard is like from the mouth, you know, from the front to the back, you know, not to yes, be gross that's here, right. you know, yeah. and it covers everything in that tract. That's right. Was, I mean, it's really about 12 or 13 different cancers. Yeah. And it's, so it's very um, diverse in terms of tumor types and they're all different. So why the neuroendocrine focus? I mean, you know, there, I mean, I know you said rare cancers, but was mm -hmm. there something I know, you know, some scientists and doctors have had personal experiences with it. Others, mm -hmm. you know, sat in, I know some of the surgeons we interviewed, you know, they did, they, they go through their rotations and they sat in on a Whipple and they were like, wow, this is so amazing. It's so long. It's so intricate. It's so, you know, so it's such a, a fascinating surgery. That's what I want to do. Mm -hmm. Was there a case or, you know, something along your training that just really sparked your interest towards that? You know, it was probably a combination of things. I think the um, initial attraction was just that I had the you know, potential opportunity to really make an impact because so little was known at the time. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, many of us go into medicine to try to make a difference. And I think that that was really appealing about focusing on a rare niche tumor. And I think what I've learned over the years is that um, patients often, patients with neuroendocrine tumors often feel really lost because they often know more than their um, doctors about the disease, particularly if they're in communities that don't have experts. And it's been a really great way to feel like I'm making a difference for patients individually, but also more broadly for the field. As a clinical trialist, I've had the opportunity to lead some trials that hopefully will make a difference for patients. So for audience listening at home, and I know, you know, a lot of times people get confused by this because so pancreatic cancer, you can have the mm -hmm. adenocarcinoma type tumors, and then you can have the neuroendocrine type tumors. Mm -hmm. What's the difference? Good question. There is often a lot of confusion about this. So um, the most common type of pancreatic tumor is by far the pancreatic adenocarcinoma. Over 95% of pancreatic tumors are that type. Um, less than 5% are pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors. Hmm. And the way we distinguish between these are under the microscope. The cells look very different. So we really rely on our pathology colleagues to help tell us you know, what type of cell that is and give us the diagnosis. They also have some special special tools and stains that they can do on the tumor tissue to also give additional information to guide us as to whether it's an adenocarcinoma or a neuroendocrine tumor. And that makes a big difference because the treatments are completely different. The prognosis is also different. And um, 
I think patients have different symptoms. I think one other very unique aspect of neuroendocrine tumors is that um, some of them can secrete hormones. So that's thus the name endocrine. And those hormones themselves can also cause symptoms. So pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors in particular can secrete a whole host of hormones, and we often will check and measure those at the time of diagnosis. So I know one of the things that I, you know, and some of the folks that I think in the public, you know, that have had the neuroendocrine pancreatic cancer tumor, Steve Jobs, Mm -hmm. Aretha Franklin, and recently, um, maybe someone you know from the Twitter spare, you may know him personally, but a GI oncologist out at Intermountain, excuse me, Dr. Mm -hmm. Mark Lewis, um, who was just a recent guest. Um, He had a neuroendocrine. He's he's awesome. And he's very, very, um, he's a good friend. And he's also, unfortunately, very open about his own diagnosis. Yeah, we just had him on our podcast recently, and uh, I didn't know much of his story other than I know he had survived pancreatic cancer, and we had talked to him back when COVID started, just about more of the GI focus, and then we just did a follow-up episode with him talking about his own personal experience, and it was fascinating just here, you know, his family history, you know, with his dad having the neuroendocrine tumors, um, and then, you know, him eventually getting it. So... And, and that's a good segue here from, do we know from a genetic standpoint that neuroendocrine tumors are genetically passed on from generation to generation? We can sometimes see that. So there are some inherited conditions that uh-huh. can predispose patients to getting neuroendocrine tumors, in particular pancreatic. Um, some of those are called multiple endocrine neoplasia type one. Um, Also, some other conditions include von Hippel-Lindau disease and neurofibromatosis. So these are conditions that we can test for. Um, We can test for the genes that are passed from parent to child. Those are called germline genes or changes. And that's often as simple as doing a blood test. And so if we identify, especially a young patient with a pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor, we will do germline testing to try to see if we can identify a gene that may be passed. Um, It's really the minority of pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, probably on the order of less than 5 to 10% of patients have an inherited predisposition. Interesting. So and the other thing that I, that I've heard in the past, and this was maybe with Steve Jobs, and I think maybe people look at that example since he was such a icon, you know, for the the software computer industry and how he passed. Is it fair to say that these are typically slower growing tumors, and so they present themselves possibly early on, and then don't get aggressive until the until ten. 15, 20 years later, because I I think with Steve's case, I I remember reading something that he was diagnosed and he had, I think a Whipple was presented to him as one of the alternatives. And he decided against that because he figured he'd had 10 or 15 years till things got kind of in a situation where he had to kind of really take care of what was going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about the specifics of his case directly, but I can definitely speak to, um, you know, how we think about the aggressiveness of these neuroendocrine tumors. So they're actually placed into 
three different categories or buckets by how aggressive they are. And there's a range. Um, so great, and that that's called the grade. So grade one, two, and three. And that is, that sort of loosely defines the degree of aggressiveness. Grade one and two are kind of lumped together in terms of how we treat them. They tend to be slower growing. Um, patients do often have years to live, even with metastatic disease. And we often will tell patients, we think of the grade one and two pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors as more of a chronic cancer. And we have many therapies, but even once a pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor is spread or has metastasized, it's generally not something we can get rid of, but it's often something that we can manage for many years. The grade three pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors can unfortunately be very aggressive, and those are treated very differently than the grade one and two tumors. And so there's really a range. I would say the probably the majority of all neuroendocrine tumors tend to be the slower growing kind, which is why they get that um, reputation. And I think Steve Jobs also had, you know, lived for many years with his cancer. And I think that that's, um, you know, that really is one thing that makes these tumors, both pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors and other types of neuroendocrine tumors unique and, and poses some challenges, I think, on the positive side, you know, patients can live for many years with their cancer. But on the, I would say one of the list, one of the challenges is that these patients then face the chronicity of um, getting scans and the anxiety that comes with that and chronicity of side effects of medications. And, 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 and I think that poses some real challenges with around survivorship. Absolutely. I, I mean, we've had a couple of patients that we've uh, just connected with over the years and, and we help both, you know, any patient battling um, regardless of the tumor type. And I, I, and I have found that, you know, those, those patients, and I, I'm not speaking for patients, but I have seen one patient in particular, he had to deal with, you're not sick because people were saying you have pancreatic cancer, but it's a neuroendocrine tumor. He, it was, you know, it was definitely a, a grade one or grade two because it wasn't aggressive. He lived for quite some time. I believe he was, you know, battling consistently, you know, for about six, seven years. And everyone kept saying, you know, when is the wheels going to fall off? You know, why like this guy's not really that sick. Um, and I think that's kind of the stigma, you know, that our society puts on patients because they think, pancreatic cancer. Okay. You have, you know, three to six months to live and you know, how could this guy be battling pancreatic cancer for seven years? A question that just came up and I, and I know we've helped a patient recently. Um, he had neuroendocrine tumor in his pancreas, but then they also found neuroendocrine tumors elsewhere throughout his, uh, stomach and, and attached, I believe to his liver. So is it is it common that they start in the pancreas and then venture off or is it vice versa? They may start somewhere else next to a primary organ and then eventually get to the pancreas or is it kind of unknown? So, you know, just broadly, when we think of GI cancers, they usually do, they do usually originate in one organ. Mm -hmm. And I'd say for neuroendocrine tumors, the most common organs that they originate in are in the small intestine, 
and then the pancreas. And then the way that we sort of name those, then a patient would either have a pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor if it originates in the pancreas, and then it can spread to other places. And for these, um, I'm going to use the abbreviation NET for neuroendocrine mm -hmm. tumor. So pancreatic NETs can then spread most commonly to the liver or to nearby lymph nodes or to the lungs. Um, and could spread to the kind of outside lining of the stomach. It just sort of depends, but it is, um, it would not be very common for patients to have a cancer originate in multiple different locations. It usually originates in one spot and it's actually helpful for us to really try our hardest to figure that out because some treatments are actually based on where that cancer originated. Fascinating. So I want to talk about treatments. Um, you know, pretty familiar um, with uh, the pancreatic cancer treatments, but are neuroendocrine tumors or nets, we'll call them nets here, treated similarly to an adenocarcinoma type tumor, or is it a totally different treatment regimen? Totally different treatment regimen. <laughs> so it's, I wish it was um, easy, right? Yeah, Nothing's no, easy. but I think that that's that's actually a really important take home for your listeners. I think that um, really, you know, in the world of GI cancers, really all of those cancers are treated differently. And I think we've learned so much in the last decade about the biology of GI cancers, and that really dictating um, how we treat them. And I think that's true for neuroendocrine tumors and true for pancreatic adenocarcinomas. Um, and I think hopefully as we learn more about the biology and the immune environment and other things about these cancers, our treatments will hopefully get better. So, so neuroendocrine tumors, really one important characteristic I'll describe for your listeners is um, a feature on the surface of the cell called a receptor. It's a mm -hmm. type of protein, and it's called a somatostatin receptor. And this occurs on probably over 80 to 90 percent of neuroendocrine tumors. And um, we take advantage of that in multiple ways. Number one, there's actually a type of scan that can image that. So it, it helps us determine extent of disease and sort of prove that it's a neuroendocrine tumor. Um, that's called, in sort of ages ago, we had an older version of this scan called an Octria scan. The newer version of that is called a Gallium 68 yeah. Dotate PET-CT. And, um, and then we also take advantage of that receptor in terms of treatment. So one of the primary treatments for neuroendocrine tumors is a class of medicines called somatostatin, um, somatostatin analogs. And two um, of those, one is called octreotide and one is called lanreotide. And those are really mainstays for often how we treat patients with metastatic neuroendocrine tumors. It helps slow the growth. It's actually really it's not even a chemotherapy. We think of it like kind of a hormone treatment. It's a once a month injection. It's very well tolerated, which is why we often start with that. Fascinating. It's a, it's a whole nother world. Um, you know, you think, you know, but you don't know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's different. I mean, we still do use some formal chemotherapies uh -huh. for, for pancreatic nets also. Um, but the most common ones are oral compared to some of the IV chemotherapies that are used for pancreatic adenocarcinoma, um, which is why, you know, getting that diagnosis right is really important. And um, actually, I think one thing that I think patients 
often are not even aware of is that, you know, we rely so heavily on our pathologists to get mm -hmm. it right. And I think that um, because pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors are rare, we often really encourage patients to make sure they get a second opinion at a center that sees a lot of neuroendocrine tumors, an expert center, because that also means that they're going to have experienced pathologists. It's so critical. I mean, uh, I, I've been saying this since day one, um, you know, and for the audience listening at home, you know, a second opinion doesn't, you know, it's not going to, you know, mean that what you're doing is wrong. Um, because I know sometimes people feel like, you know, I, I think people avoid the second opinion because they, they don't want to feel like they've made a mistake. Um, right. but I think knowledge is power. And the more knowledge you have with the situation, the better you are informed to make decisions. And I've always said that you've got to go to a high volume center. You can't stay in a community setting as much as you, and that, that was a mistake that I can say personally for my family. Um, we didn't start at Yale, but we ended uh -huh. at Yale. And by the time we got to Yale for my dad, it was too late. Uh -huh. And that was one of the battles that I regret fighting with my mom. And my dad was, you know, when my dad was originally diagnosed, you know, that we didn't, we didn't go to a major center for GI cancer. We had mm -hmm. a generalist do his Whipple, you know, we didn't have a specialist. And, you mm -hmm. know, if, if there's anything that I think we can stress here with our audience is, you know, this disease is so complex, as you can tell by what you just explained, mm -hmm. that it really, when you're fighting for your life and you're fighting this serious disease, you really need to be with a specialist and a high volume center because there really is a difference in the expertise and the quality of care that you're going to get. I agree. Yeah. And often, you know, it may just be confirming that you're on the right path Correct. and that can be really reassuring. And often the docs at academic centers can partner with a community oncologist um, and places like Yale actually have Yale affiliated community oncologists in a lot of the, the towns. So, I mean, there are a lot of ways of doing it, but I completely agree with you, Dino. Yeah. Get yeah. that second opinion. Yeah. And I think, you know, we're fortunate now where you live, where we're, we're located here in Connecticut, we do have great access to care within, you know, two, two hours, really. I mm -hmm. mean, anyone, I mean, you can go in any direction. I mean, you can go in any direction, probably in a half hour and get to, you know, Yale has, you know, branches and various locations in the state. There's partnerships, like you said, but, you know, for our audience, maybe listening in some rural areas around the country, if it means driving four hours, you know, to go see a specialist, then it's all the difference in the world that it, that potentially could be. It's well worth it um, you know, to right. get that second opinion. Um, let's shift a little bit about, you know, the things that you're excited about to be working at Yale. Um, you know, you're at Yale and helping build the program there. What are some of the things that you, maybe that you can share with our audience? I know you did just do, um, and I attended a bit of it. Uh, there was a virtual conference that you guys just put on, which I thought was really good uh, with experts there at Yale. But what are some of the other things that you're doing to kind of ramp up the awareness and the expertise that's happening there at Yale for NETS and for GI Medical Oncology? Yes, no, we're, I'm really excited. I think that um, you know, the hope is that we can really build a collaborative multidisciplinary team. And um, I, one of my favorite things to do is bring people together. And I really think that um, team science is really the future and like critical to be working together. And I think that Yale has 
um, always had a long history of tremendous basic science. And I think that we want to be sure that we're fully utilizing that. And so this um, conference that you spoke to actually was is one example of what we hope to, you know, have many of. So we had we have actually a pretty newly formed pancreatic um, cancer collaborative, and it's bringing together clinicians, um, surgeons, medical oncologists, interventional radiologists, basic scientists. Um, we had leaders from across the School of Medicine and between 80 and 100 people attended that summit. Awesome. And it was a s- series of lectures um, that really ranged uh, you know, from basic science to clinical topics, really as a way to jumpstart um, some ideas for grant proposals around team science. And so I'm really excited about that. I think that model worked incredibly well. I'd like to give a shout out to a junior <laughs> investigator, Dr. Mandar Mazumdar is yeah. one of our junior medical oncologists, and he is um, primarily based in the lab and is really focusing on new ways to think about pancreatic cancer. And um, so he helped lead that. And I think we have a tremendous team um, really thinking about pancreatic cancer. And we're starting to do that in some of our other GI malignancies, including neuroendocrine tumors and colorectal cancer and um, liver cancer, et cetera. So I think that my goal is to bring together these multidisciplinary teams and really fully develop our thoughts around research, patient care, and education. I love it. I love it. And also, I just saw that you are hiring, right? I just saw you put I out... am hiring. <laughs> so, so that's one yeah. way to grow the team there. And it is. Can... No, I'm super excited. So we plan at least in the next two years to add two new medical oncology faculty to our awesome. team. And yes, which is really exciting. And, um, and I think that, you know, we don't, it, it don't know yet what they will you know, what their focus will be. But I think, again, really trying to bring in people that have an interest in this um, bridging the clinic and the science. And that may look a little bit different for each of these hires, but um, but really excited to, to start to build that team. I love it. I love it. Um, I want to shift gears here. Um, when you left Stanford, um, full disclosure, I saw a, a blip on Twitter come across that you joined Yale, but then there was... Uh, I guess some noise when you were, uh, I guess would be the best thing to maybe mm-hmm. talk about or use here um, in terms of your departure from Stanford. You were at Stanford for quite some time. And That's right. you expressed some concern upon your leaving of Stanford about some things that were going on. And before we started recording, I know you and I talked about this. And I just want to read this statistic uh, for our audience. And this comes sure. from an article that I read. From according to the Association of American Medical Colleges, and this data is back from 2018, which is the AAMC, only 14% were made up of female department chairs and other senior leadership positions in medical schools, Mm -hmm. which is pretty sad. And I know you were pretty boisterous um, in an article that I read about your departure at Stanford. You were... um, discriminated against uh, because of being a female. And you and I were talking before we hit record, you know, to think here we are in 2020 that, you know, the science has not progressed because of the lack of respect given to female doctors, whether it's funding or institutions. And to think that this still goes on Mm -hmm. is pretty scary. 
and quite frankly, for me as a, a charity founder who's funding clinical research, to hear that this still happens, you know, in the academic setting, and it's and, and in my opinion, it's preventing advances for families battling cancers right. is disgusting. Yeah. No, I'm I'm happy to speak to that, and I think you know certainly can start. We can you know try to focus some on the solutions, but yeah. just but 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 briefly, you know, I think that I definitely faced some issues around gender discrimination and harassment during my time at Stanford. You know, and it's not unique to Stanford. This sadly is really a pervasive problem across medicine. Um, it affects women. It affects underrepresented minorities, mm-hmm. and um, you know, and I think you know one of my one of the, the reasons I, I chose to move and chose Yale is that I really want to be part of that change. I want to be in a position where I can help set the tone and culture and create collaborative, diverse teams. And I completely agree with you, Dina, like diversity of opinion leads to new ideas. Yeah. And I think that that's really kind of what what matters to me. I really very deeply value collaboration and respect and diversity and um, and so I think I'm really hoping, and you know, as I even mentioned earlier, before we jumped into this, that like that collaboration piece and teamwork matters a lot to me. Um, but I think, as you mentioned, you know, this is there, um, and I'll, I'll mention another statistic, which is interesting, is that over 50% of medical school classes entering medical school students are now women. So what's interesting is that we start off with, it's almost like, 55% women, wow. 45% men. But then we end up with like 10% of medical school deans are women. That's Yale, crazy. I will say, and I don't know if you, if you should be great to get on your podcast, but the new dean for the Yale School of Medicine is a woman. She just started in January. Um, and her name is Dr. Nancy Brown, and she came from Vanderbilt. And um, she, uh, you know, again, one of the reasons Yale felt like a good fit for me is that there's this, um, I think, evolution happening and of women in leadership roles and a recognition that we want to make a difference. And um, I also just spoke this morning. There's a, a relatively new dean for diversity in the School of Medicine. His name is Dr. Darren Lattimore, and he's also promoting gender equity and diversity, um, recruitment of diverse faculty. And so this is really, I think, a school-wide mission. And I'm excited to be part of that. That's awesome. I love it. So the the million-dollar question here, given what you experienced and what you you personally went through, how do we change it? And 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 to your point, like you said, like how do we move forward? How do we how do we fight? You know, and and you know, I've just seen in my eyes, full disclosure, you know, I, I, I think for me, if things were working the way I envisioned, then I probably wouldn't have started my own group. And, you know, fast forward 10 years, mm-hmm. and, you know, we have a way of funding research. We love, we require that our, our researchers collaborate regardless of their sex, their ethnic group, their background, where they come from. We, we're trying to get results. And, 
so to to that point, like how how do we change this narrative? Because it has has been in my experience. You know, I, I mentioned before we hit record. You know, the AACR meeting two years ago, there wasn't a female speaker until the very last segment on the last day, and then last year, uh, you know, they did make drastic changes, and you know, women and other ethnic ethnic groups were given the opportunity to speak, but it was just kind of really disheartening uh, that that had happened a couple years back. So how do we how do we make these changes? Like, what are some of the things we can do? Uh, great question, and something I've been also I've sort of tried to pivot and put, um, you know, some of my um, efforts towards making positive changes and really putting some of my frustration into into these changes. And so some things I can give some examples of things I've been doing, and some things I think you know your team and listeners can be thinking about. I think that um, one thing is I've been trying to help contribute to some objective data. I'll give an example. So as a clinical trialist, I've also made the observation that I think a lot of the lead leaders of clinical trials and first authors on publications are often men, but that's mm-hmm totally studyable. So I've actually launched a study to examine the gender of leaders for clinical trials. Those are called principal investigators Mm -hmm. Um, in GI oncology. I'm really excited about this project. My hope is to, you know, analyze this objectively. And if we identify um, gender disparities, then thinking about, well, how can we make that change? Um, I think another, um, Something else I've started doing is, you know, many faculty get invited to give talks. Mm -hmm. We get invited to serve on panels or advisory boards for pharmaceutical companies. And so I now start asking about panel composition. I've asked, you know, who else is on the panel? And if there aren't women, I'll provide women. I'll suggest that they include more women. Um, I will, you know, ask who's chairing these panels. Um, We'll nominate you know, other women or volunteer myself. And, um, and I've also started talking to pharmaceutical companies about how they can make a difference. Because I think that, you know, there's so many players in this space. And, and um, so I've had some really interesting conversations with pharmaceutical companies about gender equity, and I've gotten a lot of really genuine interest in this. And actually, I'm working on um, writing something about this with, um, with some pharmaceutical company colleagues. So Hmm. that's exciting too. So I think, you know, my hope is to provide some education. You know, I think to be honest, you know, it's not, it's, it's not all malicious and intentional. I think that some of these things happen by accident, you know, suddenly there's an all male panel and no one really thought about it. And then you see it posted (laughs) on Twitter and, and then it looks bad. And yeah, Um, and, but I, I do think that it really requires being incredibly deliberate about these things. And so, so as an example, I'm on, um, so the North American neuroendocrine tumor society is the big neuroendocrine society. So I'm an officer. Um, we just started in the last year, a new committee for diversity. Um, we are now tracking diversity in our membership, our speakers, authors on publications, webinars. And I think the first step is just measuring it. And then if we identify gaps, then we can um, make some changes. And I think we've also been really deliberate about our speakers in the last few years and who who are authors on our guidelines, publications and things like that. So I think if you don't pay attention to it, it can be 
um, really inequitable. And I think it requires a really you know, deliberate, thoughtful approach to making sure that we see more equity in medicine. I love it. I love it. I mean, I know it's not going to happen overnight, but I think, you know, the more that we have these conversations, the more that people are thinking about it, the more that people are consciously aware of this stuff, that's how we make these changes and we continue to push and, and continue to have those conversations. I, I think it, you know, is, is, a testament to everything that you know you've just said, but also uh, part of that solution. So I appreciate you sharing that with our audience. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. And I just want to make a comment on something you said earlier, which is that I think this 100% affects research and patient care. And Absolutely. I think that um, having a diverse workforce, I think, can only benefit patients. It's amazing if. Uh, you know, I know you and I agree on that, but if, you know, the whole world saw that, I think we, we, we'd solve a <laughs> yeah. lot more cancers a lot we quicker. Would. We uh, would, I you know, agree. The survivability would go up dramatically. Last thing, um, if someone is in the Connecticut area, uh, wants to learn more about what you're doing there uh, at Yale for NETS and with the GI program, where is the best place for someone to connect with you? Or maybe it's something that they heard, or maybe they have a family member, or maybe they want to learn more about the clinical trials you might be having uh, that you have going on at Yale now that you're there. Uh, where's the best resource for them to connect with you? So, you know, so the, the Yale Cancer Center website is great. I yep. would encourage people to take a look at that. Um, many of the faculty profiles, mine included, actually have our emails posted. I'm, yep. I'm happy to field emails and um, get people connected with the right places. Um, so I'd say that that website is really a great portal. And you're pretty active on Twitter. So if our listeners I am. are follow on Twitter, me on Twitter. <laughs> yes, follow, at, follow at Pamela Coons, MD. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Dr. Coons, thank you for joining us here on the Project Purple podcast. As I said, I'm excited that you're here on the right coast, no pun <laughs> intended, uh, but back home. Hopefully you've gotten some good pizza because I know there, there's the pizza out in the West Coast is it's not like Connecticut pizza or Boston pizza the, for that the matter. Pizza here, the pizza here is good. We have had yeah, pizza. <laughs> yeah, that pizza here is really good. Um, so thank you for coming back home for all you're doing for this community. Thank you for being a guest on our podcast. And as we say, that's a wrap of the Project Purple podcast. And until next time, please be safe and make sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. And until next time, that's a wrap of the Project Purple podcast. Mm -hmm.